it seems that week after week we're still continuing to see, aren't we, the religious leaders having a go at Jesus. They're trying to test him, they're trying to catch him out on all sorts of things. So even the religious leaders weren't on the same page. They used to have their differences between them. And, and two of the groups that we encounter today are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And one of the major issues that they differed on was the idea of the resurrection of the dead, the, the idea of life after death. The Pharisees believed in life after death and the Sadducees didn't. And there's a very easy way that you can remember this. I was taught this as a kid and I've remembered it ever since and you've probably heard it as well. The Sadducees didn't believe in life after death and so they were sad, you see. Okay? So you can... That, does that going to help you remember? Yep. Right out. And so they came up to Jesus with, with this curly question. Um... According to their law, if a man was married to a woman and if that man died, then it was the job of his brother to marry the wife so that she could then um, have kids to inherit his estate and so on and so forth. Anyway, so, so they, they knew of this uh, man and this woman and, and the man died. And so, according to the law, the brother married the woman, but then he died as well. And so the third brother marries the woman and he died as well. All the way along until all seven brothers had married this woman and every one of them had died and then finally she died. And so the curly question was, in the resurrection, which one is she going to be married to? Because she was married to all seven of them on earth. Now, for a start, I reckon if I was brother number four, five, six or seven, I think I'd be none too keen to be fronting up as the groom on that day. And if I did, I'd certainly be checking the kitchen cupboards very, very carefully for a half-used bottle of arsenic. But apparently this actually happened. It, it, something that really happened. And, of course, life expectancy back then is nothing like what our life expectancy is today. It t- could take anything quite minor, you know, even like a compound fracture or a bad cut or something like that could turn septic and then and eventually die. But, of course... So it wasn't an uncommon thing for a woman to lose her husband back then. It wasn't uncommon for a woman to lose two or maybe even three husbands. But I think this raises a very legitimate human question about the resurrection. Whose wife will she be? And Jesus' answer reveals something to us about the nature of relationships in the resurrection. Marriage between a man and a woman is God's design for this age, not the next. Jesus said, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, something that we have to realise is that our minds, our thoughts, our hopes for the future are somewhat limited by our current earthly existence. I'm going to say to you today that apart from Christ, the very best thing that has ever happened to me in my life, without a doubt, is my marriage to Robin. Uh, And so with this experience, if I try and picture the afterlife, a life of joy and wonder and contentment, how could I possibly picture it without picturing Robin as my wife? And there lies my problem. My mind is limited. My mind is limited by the very best 
of my earthly experience. And to be quite frank, the very best of my earthly experience, although it's wonderful, is not good enough to try and, to try and get clear in my mind what it's going to be like in the presence of God in heaven. It's nowhere, good, nowhere near good enough to illustrate the beauty of the resurrection. And so I have to accept that in the afterlife, although I will still know Robin and recognise her and relate to her and commune with her and we'll worship God together, I have to accept that we're not going to be in a marriage-like relationship. There's going to be something better. The wonder and the awe of our relationship with God, of our relationship with Christ, will be so much more amazing than the very best of what I can imagine today. So much better than even the very best of earthly marriage relationships. You know, there are some young Muslim men who strap bombs to themselves to kill, maim and mutilate people by the hundreds in crowded marketplaces and their motivation is they're going to go straight to paradise and have 72 virgins with big boobs all to themselves. Did I say that? But that's what, that's what the Quran says. As if unlimited sex is the best that afterlife could offer them. How sad is that? How sad is that? How, how carnal is that motivation? I'm afraid they're going to be pretty badly disappointed. Firstly, it's only those who are in Christ who get to paradise. And secondly, male-female relationships are going to be very different to what they are in this life. Where no one is there to lord power over the other, no one is there to be used by the other, no one is there to be nagged by the other. But even, even if we were to picture the very best of marriage relationships, the very best healthy, loving, male-female relationships there are to offer here on earth, that's going to be superseded by something far more superior, something far more unexplainably wonderful. Jesus said they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So there's a little lesson for us on the resurrection. But today I'm going to be sharing with you under two different headings. Firstly, elements of faith. And secondly, actions of faith. So we're going to be asking, where does faith come from? What can I base my faith on? And then secondly, we're going to be talking about what should my faith lead to? Okay, so elements of faith. Where does faith come from? What should I base my faith on? When there's so many different opinions out in the world about about what the Bible means, on how much of what the Bible is true, on does God still heal today, or what's the place of other religions, or what happens when you die, or what is or is not sin. In an age where there's so many different opinions on all of these different things, how can we have the confidence that our faith, that what we believe, is true? Because somebody else is going to believe something different to me. Or does truth even matter? Many people will say to you, well, that's true for you, but this is true for me. Does truth even matter? Well, yes, it does matter. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, he said this, For this purpose I was born, 
and for this purpose I have come into the world. Can anyone finish the sentence for me? Jesus said, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I came into the world, what? Some guesses? To offer my life as a sacrifice, to die on the cross, to raise from the dead. He said, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Wow. We don't often get taught that in church, do we? That was the reason Jesus was born. That was the reason he came into the world, to to bear witness to the truth. And he said, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you think that truth might matter a little bit? Too right it matters. Jesus came for that very reason, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to Christ. So it was pretty obvious that the Sadducees and the Pharisees weren't of the truth because they weren't listening to Christ. They were trying to catch him out. They were trying to trip him up and trying to prove him wrong. When the Sadducees hit Jesus with their curly question, he said to them, listen, you guys, you've got a problem on two counts. There's something here that's wrong with your thinking. You're wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor do you know the power of God. To know the truth about God is not a difficult thing. God is not elusive. You know, most of us think that it's God's really hard to find and, and the truth about God is really hard to find. It's not. It was Mark Twain who once said, most people are bothered by those passages that they cannot understand, but as he's talking about the Bible, but as for me, I always notice that the passages in Scripture which trouble me most are those that I do understand. Most of the Bible is actually very easy to understand. What troubles us is, oh, it couldn't possibly mean that, that's too hard. Or it couldn't possibly mean that, that's that's impossible. It's not that hard to understand. It's all written here, right here in the Scriptures. If you want to know God better, get into his word. If you want to know what's right and wrong, get into his word. If you want to know Christ, get into his word. If you want to know what life is all about, get into the word. Read it. Study it. I don't think our problem is that God doesn't reveal himself. I think the problem is that we don't spend enough time searching for what he actually plainly says. But there are two things here that lead to a wrong understanding of God. Ignorance of the scriptures and ignorance as to the power of God. Let's do a couple of examples. Let's look at creation. Did God create the world? Or is the creation of the world one great big exercise of of chance? Where um, there once was nothing... And then that nothing became something and that something exploded and here we all are today. Right? That's, that's basically the outline of, of the Big Bang Theory, followed by evolution. Well, what does the Bible say about creation? 
Was it all by chance or is it something different? Well, I don't think it'll surprise you that the Bible's not actually silent on this, nor is the answer elusive. It's there and it's very plain to see. And it's not only in Genesis. In Genesis it begins, in the beginning God created. And it goes on to tell, tell us how he created. But right throughout the Bible we can continually encounter God as the creator. If you know the scriptures, you will know what God says about creation. But knowledge of the scriptures alone is not the only barrier to belief. The other barrier to belief is ignorance to the power of God. If you know the scriptures, if you know that God is all powerful, well, you know the truth. God created the world. But there are plenty of people who don't believe that. There are plenty of people who know their Bibles, but they don't believe in creation. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think they don't believe in creation? It's because they don't know the power of God. If you know, if you truly, truly know and believe that God's power is limitless you're not going to have any trouble at all with the idea that God created the world. And you're not going to have any trouble at all with anything else in the Bible for that matter. Some people don't believe in the virgin birth. Some people don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. Some people don't believe that God heals people today. Why don't they believe? Because the scriptures are so very plain on these things and so very clear. On what basis can I confidently say that they are wrong? It's because they either don't know the scriptures, because these things are very plain in the scriptures, or the only other answer is they don't believe and know the power of God. And once you've experienced the power of God, that opens up your whole mind and your whole life to faith, doesn't it? When you know that God is all-powerful, when you know that God can bring whatever he says into being, when, when you know that power of God, then you will know that God can do whatever he says in the Scriptures. The basis of our faith is God revealed to us in Jesus Christ testified to in the scriptures know the scriptures know the power of God and you'll know the truth of the matter that's the basis of our faith knowledge of the scriptures and knowledge of the power of God so that brings us to our second heading actions of faith I hope you're realising by now that one of the principles of discipleship is that faith without works is dead. Faith without actions is dead. If you know the scriptures and, and if you know the power of God, well, this knowledge must be outworked in the way you live your life. It must be outworked by your actions. See, God doesn't make himself known to us just so that we can have a nice devotional thought about God. He makes himself known to us 
to, to lead us to faith and that faith then to be put into action. And that action is love. Love God and love others. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, by a particular lawyer amongst the Pharisees, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And of course when they're talking about the law, they're talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It was the first five scrolls that they had. And Jesus gave him an answer. Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He didn't stop there though. He went on and said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right? They asked about the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus went on to basically include the whole Old Testament. He wasn't just talking about the law, he was talking about the prophets as well. All of the law and all of the prophets testifies, basically the whole Old Testament testifies to these two commandments. Love God completely and to love your neighbour as yourself. Now, some people will say to me, oh that Old Testament, why do, you, why do you bother with that Old Testament? Such an angry God and there's no love in the Old Testament. I can only come to the conclusion that they've never actually read it. Because if you've read the whole Old Testament and read it in its context, yep, there'll be times when God's angry. And that's because he's a father who needs to correct his children. And fathers, if you've never been angry with your children, you're not a good dad. Because good dads have times when they're angry at their children. But it's always angry in love. And there's times for the anger to be there and there's times for the anger to subside and for you to love your children and bring them in and hug them and let them know that the punishment that they received was because you loved them. But the whole of the Old Testament testifies to the love of God. And if you read the commandments in the Old Testament, they testify to, to two commandments. So that we should love God with all, our, all of ourselves and that we should love others as we love ourselves. And when we know the scriptures and when we know the power of God, to put that knowledge into actions means that we love God back. And it means that we love others. If you love God you'll keep his commandments. And to keep his commandments is not an onerous duty. Some of us think, oh, if I'm going to keep the commandments, that's going to be a really tough thing and and a really onerous duty, something that I just have to do and not going to like. It's not a bad thing to keep the commandments of God. All you've got to do is love God and love others as much as you love yourself. That's not a bad thing. That's not a hard thing. Jesus said to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Now, I don't think he was telling us to compartmentalise our lives. I think really what he is saying is, love God with all of yourself. 
One of the other Gospels also slip in there that um, with all of your strength as well. So, but the heart, love God with all of your heart. The heart is that part of us which is the centre of our personality. We're not talking about a muscle that goes like that umpteen million times in your life. It's talking about the seat of our emotion. It's the centre of our personality. It's often the place that God reveals himself to us. It's our feelings. It's our emotions. Love God with your feelings. Don't feel that you're not allowed to express your feelings in worship. Some people will criticise and go, oh, way too much emotion in that church. Way too much emotion. Hey, God wants you to love him with your emotions. Now, sometimes that might move you to tears. Sometimes it might move you to joy and, and, and happiness. Love God with your emotions. Love God with all your soul. Um, the original Greek word in, in the New Testament is the word psyche for soul. Does that give you a bit of an idea what we're talking about when we're talking about soul? The soul is the psyche. It means your intellect. It, it means your life. That part of you which is alive. It's who we are. It's what makes us tick. And it's important for us to love God with all of our soul because your emotions, your heart, isn't enough. Because there's times when you're not going to feel like loving God. True? There's times when you're not going to feel joyful. There's times when you're just not going to feel like praising God. Does that mean we should stop praising God because we don't feel like it? There are people who I know whose almost their whole lives have, have clinical depression. Now, if they, re, if they completely relied on, on feelings, could they ever love God? Could they ever be joyful in God? No. It depends also on, on not just what we feel, but our whole lives. We have to determine that I love God and God is worthy of praise no matter how I feel. Love God with all of your life. Love God with all of your being. Not just because you feel like it, but because you're living it. And Jesus said to love God with all of your mind. Some people think that if you're going to be a Christian you've got to switch your mind off because they expect you to believe the unbelievable, etc. Not at all. God wants you to bring every thought to captivity to him. God wants you to love him with every bit of your mind, with every bit of your intelligence. He wants us to yield it to him. He wants us to love him with all of our thoughts. Feelings aren't enough. Knowing on the inside isn't enough. God wants your thinking. God wants your reasoning. He wants you to love him with it. So we have the elements of faith. Know the scriptures. Know the power of God. And you're not going to have any trouble discovering the truth about God. And then we have the actions of faith. Love God with every bit of your being. 
and love others as you love yourself.